I labored for 33 hours for my first son, with my first son. For more than a day, the rhythmic heartbeat of my unborn child beeped in the background while doctors and nurses and midwives employed their bag of tricks to get him to come out. Infertility is a fairly common problem, and we had some losses before Killian. I remember the first time we knew that Killian would be. We went to have an ultrasound, a process we were fairly familiar with, and we were nervous and scared and hopeful, and we looked at this black and green screen. And the tech smiled and pointed and said, do you see it? And we smiled back and said, no. <laughs> but there was this one tiny flickering pixel, and that was Killian's heartbeat. And it was beautiful and amazing. It was the miracle that we had been waiting for. We lived in California then. We were far from family. Uh, so all progress was shared over the phone, from afar, teary phone calls of sorrow and joy. We'd go to appointments and quickly snap and text photos of our treasured and fairly indiscernible ultrasound pictures. You know the ones, they're black and white, grainy, look like they're printed on CVS receipts. <laughs> look, there's a head, or is that a heel? Or maybe that's one of my organs. It didn't matter. Week in and week out, I'd follow one of those baby sites that tells you what fruit or vegetable your little one is the size of, a kumquat or a turnip or a jicama, and what was developing in his little body. That was 2008, and like so many others, I lost my job in the recession when I was seven months pregnant, and with it, my health insurance, but that's a sermon for another day. I spent the remainder of my pregnancy making a place in my home and life for the baby, what we'd name him, how many middle names he'd have, what stuff we needed, which bore some, some consistency with what he actually needed. I washed and folded the blankets, the towels, and the clothes, and packed my hospital bag. So when it was time, I was ready, and so not ready. I think that's true for most parents. When finally he was born, we were brought to our room. My husband had been up with me most of the time, so he went to sleep. So I was laying in my bed with Ryan on my left and my beautiful, perfect baby in a clear bassinet on my right. But with all that had happened in 33 hours, I was too numb to get to him. And so in this act somewhat cartoony of looking side to side to make sure no one was looking, I reached over and picked him up by his swaddled blankets, and his poor little head flopped back, but I was like, I want to hold him. So I picked him up and I pulled him into bed with me. And I was amazed, just amazed, that, that I had done this in all the complicated ways that I have felt about my body over the years, that my imperfect body had made this perfect little being. And not only that, but that in seven pounds, he had all the organs that he needed for life. Was really beyond my imagination. I knew about biology and evolution, and I understood some of the wonders of God's creation, but that was the first moment when I felt that wonder with my body and in my body. 
How could someone so ordinary, one of billions of people on the planet, do something so incredibly extraordinary? You know, though, God has a way of using ordinary people and things to do and teach and show the extraordinary. Jesus and his friends are being followed around by a crowd inspired by his healing miracles. They have been seeing what Jesus has been up to, and they are convinced, and they are following because they want to see more. As they head up the mountain, Jesus knows what's coming, and he asks Philip, how are we going to feed these folks? And Philip says, six months' wages couldn't give each of these people a bite. You can tell the disciples are trying to answer. They're trying to figure out what Jesus is asking and, and really the practical problem, a practical solution to this practical problem. And Andrew says, well, there's this boy with some fish and a little bit of bread. Bread and fish are ordinary things, even in our time. This was probably his lunch. And Jesus takes the bread and the fish and he offers thanks to God. And they begin to distribute this bread and fish to 5,000 people sitting in a pasture. And when they are done, when they have eaten as much as they can eat and want to eat, they recollect the leftovers and there are 12 baskets still of food. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. The writers of the four Gospels had different interests and different audiences. So many of you know this because there's a great catechesis program here, but I'm going to give you a quick brush up. So scholars can argue about pretty much anything. Some of you are scholars and have argued about everything. Um, (laughs) But it is believed generally that Matthew was written for the religious elite. This Matthew is a a gospel where they're um, trying to convince, the, the writer of Matthew is trying to convince the religious elite that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Luke was a, book, a, Luke was a book that was written for the Gentiles, for um, new people to the faith. Mark was written in kind of a common tongue. It's an easier book. It's short. You can sit down and read all of Mark in a sitting. Um, and um, those are the three synoptic gospels. Those three reference each other. They're very similar. Um, They have some of the same stories, lots of overlap. Um, And then John is the outlier, right? John is mystical and poetic. John was written later. It was probably written for people who were already committed Christians, um, right? Christians and not just um, people beginning, right? This is new. Um, And so generally, because John is this kind of other alternative, what we have is a three-year lectionary. So we have Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and John. So this year we're in a Mark and John year. So this story is a story that appears in all four Gospels. Why is this story, the feeding of the 5,000, why is this the story that all four Gospels hold? Why is this the miracle story that all four Gospels hold? And what was it about this story that our spiritual ancestors wanted us to remember and know because what was it about this story that taught us what did this story teach us about god that's the real question here right 
Jesus takes bread and fish, maybe peanut butter and jelly in our time, and makes it Thanksgiving dinner, an abundant, overfilling meal where there is food left over. God meets our hunger not just to fullness, but beyond our imagination. Quite soon after our son was born, I realized that he was not half me and half my husband. He was his own self, his own being, even from the very beginning. Indeed, he has always been more than the sum of our parts. But before all that, in that hospital bed, in the wee hours of the morning, holding my teeny tiny baby, I was shaken by how much I loved him. I know this isn't true for everyone, that birth and hormones and circumstances can be complicated, but for me, I felt knee-buckling love for him the instant that I saw him. And there would never be a container big enough, words or thoughts or feelings, that could hold the, la- the love chasm he broke into my body. And as I looked at him and my heart felt more than I knew to hope for, I had a shocking second revelation that my parents, that my parents love me that much too. And it changed my relationship with my parents forever. I carry myself differently now. And finally, that this overpowered love was but a tiny, imperfect sample of the pure and perfect love of God. Sometimes it takes ordinary things to help us see the extraordinary. God didn't love us more that day when 5,000 people sat on a hill with Jesus. But that day, that miracle shook us into seeing what was true all along. That we are loved so perfectly that even when we have our fill, there will be 12 baskets left. There was more than one miracle that day. There being enough bread was first and foremost, and the bold, audacious proclamation that God was bigger than anyone had imagined. And they had already seen miracles that were beyond believing. God's love for you and for me, it is bigger and more perfect than we have imagination for. God came fully human and fully divine and lived as one of us. And Jesus' sole mission was to embody God's love for us, for humanity. Through miracles and healings and sacrifice, God offered more bread than the 5,000 could eat and more love than the people could contain. It is the knee-buckling love that makes us carry ourselves differently. Jesus used an ordinary lunch to teach us about the expansiveness of God. God uses ordinary bodies to bring us miraculously into this world. What extraordinary thing might God be working through you? Today we gather to worship God, our creator. This is part of our weekly pause to give thanks and ask for help and to reconnect with God through prayer and one another. If this is your one hour for God this week, thank you for worshiping with us. I hope that you take a minute now during one of the hymns in that time while you're waiting for others to take communion. I hope that you will set aside a moment to ask God 
How can I help you do a miracle? What needs to be in the world and how can I be an agent of that? In a few minutes, Deacon Ken will send us out. May we ordinary folks be used to God's extraordinary purpose, spreading abundant love to those we meet along the way. Amen.